1948. World War II is over. The boys have come back home and are back to work. Families are born and resettle into burgeoning suburbia. Cities stretch on for miles linked by endless highways in a promised land that can only be described as insatiable. It feels like we've been here before, doesn't it? In the late 80s and 90s, Hollywood experienced a mini-boom in the neo-noir movement, which by this point had been going on for longer than the classic noir period. Among the many strands, the retro-noir continued to go strong. Continuing the through-line of Chinatown and Farewell My Lovely in the 70s, another two P.I. tales take us back to the heyday of noir. The two Jakes revisit Jake Giddies 11 years after the events of Chinatown, as he once more gets sucked into the sordid history of L.A. land grabs, while Devil in a Blue Dress adapts Walter Mosley's novel of the same name, introducing P.I. Ezekiel Rollins as he takes his first case involving L.A. politics and racial divisions. Each film takes great pleasure in its period details, even as they bring their own modern and distinct spin to classic noir tropes. And as it just so happens, both are set in 1948. What is it about this year in particular that makes it so appealing for retro noir settings? That's just one of the things we'll be discussing in today's episode as we return once again to the dark heart of L.A.'s history. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh... Your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and then talk about them. I'm one of those friends. Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Pelzer. And tonight, we're taking a celluloid time machine into Noir's past once again. Later, we'll be examining Carl Franklin's 1995 adaptation, Devil in a Blue Dress. But to start, we'll be revisiting the man who kicked the off the retro Noir movement with Jack Nicholson's 1990 sequel to Chinatown, The Two Jakes. The war was good for L.A. Brought in money, opportunity, and more than a little greed. Put the weasel in jail. Nothing else matters. Nothing else in the world. How about five or six million bucks? Could I make a phone call? Please. Now the war's over, and people come here because they think the money's easy and the women are easier. That's a combination that's good for business. The divorce business. Released in 1990 and directed by Jack Nicholson, when that became the only way for the movie to get made, The Two Jakes also stars Nicholson as the returning Jake Giddies, alongside Harvey Keitel as the other Jake, and Meg Tilly and Madeline Stowe as competing femme fatales. It was written by original Chinatown scribe Robert Town. Once more, Jake takes what's supposed to be a simple divorce case, providing Keitel's Jake with cover for his divorce proceedings, only to find himself an alibi for murder and a passy for larger criminal conspiracies. It may be a new <laughs> decade of prosperity, but the tune stays the same. What's worse, the deeper Jake goes with his investigation, the more ties to the Mulrays from Chinatown are revealed, and the more personal it all becomes. All right, so personal experience. Have you seen this movie before? I have I have not, no. Um, and and I guess like it was it was on my radar in in some fashion, but like not even enough that I would have thought, oh yeah, Chinatown has a sequel. Like I 
I I mean, it would it wouldn't have surprised me, but and I think I'd heard it in passing, but I it really is not one of those those sequels that that stands out to you as as even really existing. Um, not not from my perspective, at least. No, much the same. Yeah, it's like I kind of knew of it, but Chinatown is so monumental and monolithic, and it it just uh, it doesn't even cross your mind. It almost it certainly feels like you know like those Disney direct to video sequels to popular movies, where you're like, did you know that Aladdin had three sequels that were produced by Disney, and but they were all released or two sequels or whatever, or like Mulan has multiple sequels, but none of them got theatrical releases. Now, part of this is when this movie came out, we were like two or three or whatever. So uh, we wouldn't have been old enough to see it in theater. So for obvious reasons, it does not, you know, there wasn't a, a theatrical release that we were able to participate in. But still, it, in terms of the conversation, it does kind of feel forgotten in a similar way. Right. And I mean, I think uh, like I've been a fan of Chinatown for a really long time. It's one of those films that like back in college, I latched on to as, um, as one of my first uh, um, like, oh, this is cinema kind of experiences and uh and and in in viewing it and in you know becoming a fan i had a poster in my dorm room of it uh like i it never really came onto my radar that oh yeah there's a sequel that you you just have to see well i think there might be a reason for that so some context for this movie uh town and nicholson uh, and as we talked about in the chinatown episode they were friends going back many years because they came up in L.A. together. And they had attempted to get the sequel made for years after Chinatown's success. Uh, Town had envisioned the film as a trilogy, tracking aging giddies through the different eras of L.A. And both this one and the previous one were much more focused on the L.A. land issues, which was one of the original sources of inspiration for, for Chinatown. And, and again, it's one of those things where Town was always sort of like, there's even more story here that we can get into that that crosses over the decades. So it was always something that he wanted to return to. And originally, Town was supposed to direct and legendary Paramount producer Robert Evans to star in the Keitel role, because um, Evans had previously been an actor before he transitioned to becoming a producer. Uh, however, both Town and Evans were wrestling with substance abuse issues uh, in the years after Chinatown, and fears regarding their respective res- responsibilities caused that version to fall apart. Uh, there was then a series of directors and possible co-stars that cycled in and out until finally, uh, just because of where the rights were at and who had the access, it became the only way forward was for Jack Nicholson to also direct. Um, and I think he also took a pay cut. And then, uh, unsurprisingly, after all that round and round, it was not a smooth production and there was extensive reshoots to, to get to the finish line. This is like right after Batman. He's probably at the the height of his can cash the biggest check he wants in in Hollywood. Um, so so him was, being the I one mean, that has to pull this across the finish line makes sense. I, I think it was actually before, like uh, during production on Batman, or I, I'm not entirely sure on the timeline, but my guess would be I, yeah. This, this clearly took a, a while to right. to get made. I can I, tell. Yeah, I think this took long enough to come out to like shoot and then reshoot and then finally get released that. It would have been at least in motion during Batman. I'm pretty sure. Wow. Uh, well, that makes sense. Um, I like I like that idea. Seeing like um, seeing that uh, that Town had thought of this as a, a trilogy. I like I like that concept. Uh, I like that. 
Um, I like tracking aging, um, aging gires through through LA across different eras and having Chinatown start at like the pre-noir era. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're right at the end of the 30s. It's about uh, like it makes sense to if if we were seeing it there and then at the height of of um, noir and then kind of post or at the at the tail end of it. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I mean at this point, I think the the third one was supposed to be late 60s um but even now there's there's still even with this movie which we'll get to there's still definitely probably that's like i wonder what it'd be like if somebody came to nicholson and was like would you come out of retirement to do a third to do like complete the trilogy it would be set a little bit later than that it actually set around the time of like maybe a little bit after chinatown's release yeah um so it'd be you know pre-noir noir and then neo-noir as the the time periods that it moves through I mean, probably it wouldn't make sense and it probably wouldn't be good, but, you know, there's definitely still probably that, that would want to see the trilogy completed. 12 years since his last role. Yeah. He's been out of the game a while. Um, that too. And would it be good? I don't think they can have Polanski direct it. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's let's talk about the movie itself, The Two Jakes. And I think this is sort of one of those movies where the like its context can feel maybe more interesting than the movie itself. It absolutely does so the movie you know continues like we said to continues the concern with like la history you know we've moved on from water rights to oil rights to the highways to secret gay bars um you know highways felt like sort of an interesting touchback to uh i don't know if this is a compliment or i mean to me it's a compliment but uh, um who framed roger rabbit you know like the, it, it almost it almost situates Roger Rabbit as like the third movie in the trilogy where it goes huh. water rights, uh, highway, public domain, and then oil rights. I like that. <laughs> I like thinking of it that way. That's fun. Yeah, that big speech um, of the oil man where he's like, highways, highways are the blood of America and the oil is what makes it happen. Well, and it's, it's definitely doing what... Um, it's doing what an ambitious noir ought to do, which chi- what oh. Chinatown did, and it's and it's taking what seems to be a mundane plot and then scratching beneath the surface slowly until something big is revealed, and and this oil battle is um, it, it, it all makes sense and it's all I, I, conceptually it's a good idea. It sounds good on paper. Yeah, no, it's all very sound. It's just I don't know. It felt low energy. Like it, it just feels kind of it feels like it's obligated to to do this. Yeah, and I I mean I think that uh, that all all respect to the performance, but there's 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 Nicholson the performer and there's Nicholson the director, and there mm-hmm. one one is greatly more capable than the other. And it being a passion project, it being something he really wanted to get off the ground, does not necessarily equate to to um, having. Uh, fully developed directorial instincts that that something with this kind of scope and ambition needed it yeah it is just sort of by the numbers and you know not bad certainly but it just kind of checks the boxes and i mean it it felt i think we'll get into this a little bit as its own but it, it felt like like you know we're on season seven of an ongoing show and everybody's like, I guess we're still doing this. Huh. No, I can see that. Um, and it's, uh, I, I think it's got, it's, 
it's got Harvey Keitel doing giving a, a rather good performance, and I think yeah. he's he's helping proceedings quite a bit. Um, but then there's there's just a whole there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of trying to play the hits. It it really hits the the Mulray angle hard, and um, and I mean that mileage may vary for people, but I I. I didn't need to be reminded about how much better the first movie was. I mean, the newspaper clippings was a lot. Um, and I mean, and obviously like this movie came out, how, how, how long did I say? 16 years after the, the original. And so at a time to, I mean, I guess it was still, this isn't home video. So it was easier to have watched it at home and refresh yourself, but you would still, you know, I think there is, I think our viewers, Harvest's viewers have changed in the era of streaming and binging and just being able to roll into the next thing. And I think like recaps feel a little less obligatory and like Marvel has just sort of been like, you're just going to have to figure it out, everybody. Like we can't recap 30 movies or whatever. But um, but at the same time, it was it was a little, I don't know, I was of two minds about the mole rays and the overall Chinatown connections on the one hand it did feel kind of appropriately pulpy to be like, this is a book in an ongoing series and like, and some old cases also popping back up and it's supposed to give you that tingle of like familiar names and faces. And um, I'm never going to complain about James Hong being no complaint there. Uh, that like that kind of thing works really well for me. It might partly be how much it, how the toll it took on him. This is an odd complaint, I think, but um, it's almost like uh, I don't know. This this may get more to the the private eye question of it all, but like I I like my detectives troubled, but I don't necessarily want them. I uh, I don't want them so consumed. I I don't know. I think it I hmm. think it maybe um, pulled me. It it pulled me too much into into. Giddy's past versus um versus the case sure i don't know it was and it's not like it's or maybe it was just calibrated wrong maybe that's the, no, that's the a fair point because it is like important to the case right like this works because she's got the land rights i mean i will also say the reveal felt very obvious from moment one where this was going and so i was just like okay this isn't you know, it feels shocking when you find out, like, she's my daughter, she's my sister in Chinatown. And in here, you know, like, they could have gone, I mean, this would have been a very different and darker movie. They could have gone, like, old boy on this with Kitty. And he doesn't find out until it's too late. And then you're like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> um, and that, you know, and just really get messed up with it. But instead, it was it's just so safe about it that's, like, I don't know. I think it doesn't unpack it. It doesn't give us anything new to like no, chew on for any of that. It's set up for such a difficult task because it is. It's trying to have. It's trying to have the same ambitions as the first movie without having new ones. Um, right. And and uh, and so again, playing the hits. You've got Richard Farnsworth being John Huston, and uh, much as much as he's good, he's no John Huston. Like you're, everything's living in the shadow of something that was was done better right um especially with uh la confidential coming four years after this and like doing the same thing but so much better well let's let um 
let's look at 1990. What a what a weird year, and not a not a great year. I don't think anyone's going to defend this as one of the the all time great years in in cinema. But we've got Godfather three, so that's probably the the most obvious you know, legacy sequel that um, that does not deliver on on promises. Um, comes a bit too late, and and uh, a lot of parallels. Most people would rather pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, uh, and and Have around you watched this... the new the new. I can't. It's not a director's cut. I can't remember what couple is calling it, but uh, his new. No, he, did, you, did you hear about this? I have not. Oh, he. I think this was a. Maybe this was a. I can't remember. This was a COVID project, or it was already in the works pre-COVID. But um, he recut the third movie, huh. and apparently, it is like better and gives it more clarity in terms of like Michael's arc and and all that. It's not even like new material. It's just him. I think he actually like took stuff out, but but apparently, it it, it works better. I'm very curious to see it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and then you've got um, what? Uh, what else this year? You've got you've got Goodfellas. You've got Miller's Crossing. Um, so it's uh, for I don't know. There's a lot of um, the, there's a lot of looking at crime, looking back at the past. Uh, I uh, it's uh, it's not till another year or two, but there's Bugsy, which also kind of feels like it, it's kind of in this mindset. Uh, 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 there's there, there's certainly a strain of uh, of looking back noir or, or crime uh, well, even, flicks of this era. Uh, even like, you know, the... So Batman's a huge hit, right? We were just talking about. And so the studios go, okay, great. We're not going to do more superhero movies. We're going to do more 30s vigilantes. And so you, and we're going to do them all the rest of them as period pieces, right? So you've got Dick Tracy, Zorro, uh, the Phantom, uh, and um, the Shadow, and yeah. they're all like 30s and 40s set. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's all it's all this is is I don't know. This is a moment not just with these movies, but but in general where it's it's really going back to that era, which is really interesting. It's like something about 50 years earlier-ish, people were looking back. Probably because, you know, you've got, like, the early baby boomers, like, the early wave of the baby boomers as creative execs being able to look back and be like, this is what I grew up with, what my older siblings grew up with. It speaks to me, and so let's, right. let's make and, it. And, you know, there's... There, there are exceptions like the original Chinatown, um, but it's not really until this era that you start getting a bunch of of period pieces that are looking back toward toward the 30s and 40s. There's definitely a few exceptions in there uh, along the way uh, and notable ones, but but it just feels like that does explode right around now, and it makes sense given the the age of the people who are are yeah. And we'll going we'll talk about that more at the end. We also after we've also covered Devil in a Blue Dress, but it is it, but it is such a yeah a thing. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. Is there anything else about the two? I don't know. Like, it's not. I feel like you liked Nicholson's performance more than I did. I thought it was fine, and I've liked Nicholson in this era, but I feel like maybe the directing he, duties I mean, was he's... sort of splitting his attention. 
Oh, no, no doubt. He's just got such a, a like natural charisma that, sure. that carries with him that I think can can push a film to a to a certain level just because he's an, an enjoyable guy to to watch. Oh, yeah, he can command uh, a camera, but, uh, command a camera's gaze uh, still for sure. Uh, th- this isn't a movie without merit. Um, I, d- I don't think it's still it, it was still interesting. I still probably slightly liked it more than I didn't like it. But um, but, you know, it's it's hard to live up to um, know, like it's a little too long and it's yeah. uh it it is not the it's not thrilling by any means uh i don't no, know it's just so again just so low energy as it goes through all these beats and it feels like a long denouement to the movie to the chinatown right it feels like a kind of just like wanting to make sure everybody knew that that uh, the daughter got out okay Ultimately, like it's still a fucked up situation. I'm sure it was not great living with um, Houston, but ultimately, she's doing okay, kid. You know, you're doing okay, kid. It's sort of like the message where where the whole thing builds up to, and it's just okay. Yeah. Like I'm, I don't know. It was nice to see that where that landed, but even I don't know. You know, I I I enjoy a solid, sturdy noir. I don't need it to be great for me to be like. This this was a good use of my time, and you can listen to our um, watching our, our review of the uh, uh, Chicago's Noir City series for me to be like, you know, these are worth your time for this reason or that reason. And this one just like it's just like okay, it, well, it was on, and then now it's done. Let's file file this away for when we when we kind of wrap up. But I'm like, this is that this is where we've got um, we have something that's that's taking a stab at prestige noir, which mm-hmm. is so contrary to mm. the pulpy B movie roots that are, that just permeate the genre. Um, so I don't know. There's more to unpack there. I feel like that, that's feel a like really good point though. That maybe there, there's something that doesn't quite work there. And, and yeah. yet, and, and yet you have, you know, Chinatown proving contrary, but Chinatown's always been kind of like the exception to the rule. Yeah, and I think you're. I think you're, and it probably is like the legacy of that sort of shapes your approach, right? Um, but I think it's also a good point that this kind of leads us to the flip side of doing going for too much prestige, which is like, which is that sturdy, pulpy noir thrills. Uh, talking about our other movie tonight, Devil in a Blue Dress. For Ezekiel Rollins, L.A. was a world of sunshine and shadows. Padme! Hey, easy. How you doing, baby? Ah. Junior. Take easy on upstairs. Black and white. We got no work here. Sorry, fella. My name's not fella. My name is Ezekiel Rollins. So here you need a job. What kind of work you do? I'm just looking for somebody. Daphne Monet. Fiance of Todd Carter. She's been gone two weeks. See, Daphne has a predilection for the company of Negroes. He thought he knew how to play the game. And he all seen a white girl by the name of Dahlia, Delilah, something like that. Her name is Daphne. You can't get none of that tonight. You know Until he stepped into a world. Why don't you tell me about your friend Daphne? Tell her woman ain't good enough for you no more, huh? 
where there are no rules. Adapting the 1991 book of the same name by Walter Mosley, Carl Franklin wrote and directed the film version starring Denzel Washington as Ezekiel Easy Rollins, along with Tom Sizemore, Jennifer Beals, and Don Cheadle in supporting roles. The story follows Easy Rollins as he's hired by Sizemore's fixer to track down a mayoral candidate's missing white girlfriend, who's known to frequent black establishments. Places Sizemore wouldn't be welcome. Easy himself is soon popping back and forth between black speakeasies and white politicians' mansions, trying to find the on-the-run Beals while suspected himself in a series of murders. Tristan, what's your relationship with this movie? I have heard of it for a while. It's been on my radar. I just hadn't watched it for some reason. Uh, it, it, I don't know why it took me so long to get around to it, because it's pretty darn good. Yeah, same. You know, I think it's always been on my radar as like that that wave of '90s noir, and uh, yeah, I'd heard good things, and wouldn't you know it, it's really good. And it's uh, uh, some context. Carl Franklin um, is a big part of that '90s noir movement. He'd already directed One False Move by this point, which would have disappeared if Roger Ebert hadn't championed it every chance he got. He was literally on. The Tonight Show, I think, and was just like out there plugging this movie just because he was like, he loved it and wanted more people to see it. And, um, and I think it's a, and that's a big reason uh, that the, Franklin got to get to do this movie. The, the golden era when film critics could actually right. drag, drag films across the finish line somewhere. When film critics oh. would be invited onto late night shows and when late night shows were incredibly <laughs> relevant to the cultural conversation. <laughs> Times change. Um, so yeah i I had seen one false movie before it is also a really good little crime caper and uh another movie i'm excited for us to eventually get to but uh but no this was a great excuse to finally get to watch this and you know talk about uh movie star charisma that denzel washington yeah uh he's done something else right he's i I feel like (laughs) one or two things yeah uh you see him around right um he uh, he's just someone that you um, that that you can't help but watch. He kind of he commands the screen. He his he's he's got a kind of charisma performance that forces everyone else to pivot around him automatically. It's just the the kind of authority that he he speaks with. Uh, few others can match him for that. Absolutely. I mean, it's yeah, it's just something you've got or you don't have, and, and he's got it. Um, although. Don Cheadle comes along and he almost steals uh, it out from under him. I would, I would, I would go as far as to say he does. Um, Don Cheadle steals the show every single time he's on screen. I don't know how. Uh, he's a great actor, clearly, um, uh, but I was not expecting that great of a performance to emerge from from within the corners of this movie. It's right, and he shows, he shows so up fun. like halfway through too. It's right. like and all like, of a sudden, there's I, Mouse. I'd watch a full movie with with Mouse, absolutely. I don't know, maybe he's best in smaller doses. I'm not sure, but he's he's so good. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of you know, if if Chinatown felt like the 20th book in a long running series, this is the first book in a long running series, and there are many books of uh, Easy working in L.A. and so Mouse is an ongoing supporting character. I've, I'm not super familiar. I don't know how how long he's in those books for, or oh, if he maybe cool. passes away at some point. It is a dangerous line of work they're in. But um, if you want to read some books, you can get to experience more Mouse. Huh. Nice. Uh, oh, this is this is the 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 antidote to 
to Jake's. This is this is a movie without the weight of the world on its shoulders. This mm-hmm. is it, it can exist with it can exist without the the same kind of lofty ambitions and just be a really well executed um B picture sounds like it's selling it short. It's not right. it's not schlocky. It looks good. It's just it's not it's not sh- swinging for the fences necessarily. It doesn't have airs about it. It's just like no. we're going to give you the goods and it gives you the goods. Um, and it's really, I mean, it is like, and I think the interesting thing about it, right, is that it takes so many classic tropes of the genre and leads into them, but for one crucial difference, which then makes them feel fresh again, right? Because here you've got the detective who's also accused of the crimes that he's investigating. You've got a classic femme fatale. You've got LA politics, especially that like that slimy mayoral candidate ah, as soon as you appear in even the limo you're like oh my god this oh, guy's no that's you know, I mean, but but like good the gro- grotesque figures like that right. are always popping up at the fringes of noir that's like right. like that's what i'm there for i mean it's like you, you know 40 years earlier could have been played by uh in what's his name Sidney Green Citizen Kane. oh oh Sidney, um, yeah sure uh by thinking uh touch of evil era uh, um orson welles orson welles uh um, oh yeah 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 definitely but no, I mean, like, it, it has all these elements, but the fact that it's specifically about a black detective dealing with both sides of the racial divide in L.A. gives it all, like, extra texture and makes it feel fresh and interesting and new again, even though we're, you know, this is what, episode 14, so we're 30 movies into the detective series and you know i uh, yeah these are beats that i've kind of seen before but i still really enjoyed getting to see it because it was denzel and because it was in this specific world and this specific point of view i mean increasingly that's how that's how you find freshness in old genres is by finding different perspectives finding different voices to to tell those stories to center those stories on and um and this just comparing the two entries from from tonight this uh with with so much less on its shoulders with so much less that it's trying to pull off it does a whole lot more it's also got a great score i love i love that elmer bernstein score is is very good um very you know what he's doing uh, yeah <laughs> i suppose if you haven't watched it before definitely watch it it is a movie that you will probably figure out most, if not all, of what's going on by the end of Act One. But also, that's okay. You know, I like it still just has so much pleasure in the specific choices in the world that it's building in, in its throwback to the different era that, uh, you know, again, I was like, I, I know, I see what's going on here, but it's just so well done and just so sturdy and and confidently made that that you, you have a blast watching it anyway i'm not convinced that that knowing where something's going is necessarily a, a make or break for uh for a noir um it's uh it, it's okay um i uh you know uh, i'm i'm open to being surprised i'm open to having the the rug pulled out from from under me but also uh, there, there's something to be said for just the the confidence to hit the the expected beats really well and and deliver exactly what you're you're promising. Yeah, I think a sort of interesting element of that, and I so um, the uh, Jennifer Beals is an interesting bit of casting because 
you know, she's a star from Flashdance. She was she was known for for actually largely playing either like kind of ambiguous or white roles or understood to be white roles, but is in fact, you know, mixed race. And so there there's almost sort of a meta element to her casting in this female lead who turns out to herself be passing and which obviously even more impactful in the world of 1948 than it is in the 80s and 90s. And um, and so in a certain sense, like you could probably, that, that even makes it even more obvious what the story is up to. But then again, like as an actress, she often passed. And so you could watch it and be like, oh, she's passing again. And then it plays it. So it was just another interesting layer. I to did not what know that. Yeah. Uh, so that um i was i did not have that spoiled i don't i don't know that i i i don't know that i would have necessarily minded if i'd i'd known that but i, I guess it did make for a, a a nice surprise not not having that already in my head right and i feel like today you could not do that like you could not do that casting and then wait to reveal that element Right. Oh no, absolutely not. You're you're like you could do it with an unknown actress, but everybody is so aware of race and casting and who's playing what kind of part that you know it 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 would it would the the people that are going to scrutinize a movie that are going to review a movie they're going to talk about it are you going to have known that going in maybe not maybe not your average average moviegoer that's that's going to put it on on netflix but uh but if people are like already seeking to analyze the film talk about it they're probably already aware of that kind of casting choice going in you're right right i mean it makes me think of um passing from from last year and you know, like, and obviously structurally, it's not built to do that as a mystery, right? It's from within the first 15 minutes, it puts the cards on the table, but it is, but, but on a casting level, you're like, okay, those are two, you know, mixed race actresses who often play black or play mixed race. And so those are the parts like that's, that's, those are the roles that they're playing. And it just would not like the, it's just it'd be it's just a very different conversation now, which I find really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, gosh, what was I thinking? Although you probably um, could cast, um, I mean, maybe you could maybe cast um, the director of passing in this role. Um, that's true, uh, Rebecca Hall. Rebecca Hall, because she is actually mixed race and. But I think that's like a very small part of the conversation that came up around passing that a very select people, like group of film people are now aware of, but most people aren't. And most people see her as a white actress. So you could cast Rebecca Hall in this role and then reveal that, you know, that she is passing. Yeah, that's true. And I think that people probably, if it weren't for for the the movie, I don't know that people necessarily would have had that on their their radar either. So. So, but yeah, then it would become right. a big talking point, right? Because then it would have to right. be like part of the interview circuit. Would be like, by the way, I am in fact of you know, but uh, like my heritage allows me to play this part, right? Like I am not a white actress uh, playing a mixed race character. Yeah, well, it's 
Um, I'm, it, it's interesting too how, I, I don't know, I feel like the, the, the reveal that that particular reveal does does land with a punch but i also and i i guess i commend the film for this i feel like it 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 plays the um the whole reveal and and the uh and the interaction at the end uh with um with uh what's uh her the boyfriend with, the boy, yeah, the mayoral the candidate the the, the what's the mayoral candidate um, it plays it fairly subtly. I thought I I didn't I I thought that it could have ratcheted it up a whole lot more. I don't know that that would have been the right move. Um, no, but yeah, I, I, I I liked that it it just had confidence in the premise and it didn't feel like it needed to to take big swings with it. I don't know. I liked I liked how that was handled. Yeah, I thought it was smart that you know obviously she has to have a lot of self awareness and control to be able to move through both worlds like that. But at the same time she tricked herself into thinking that she could get away, continue to get away with it once, yeah. once the truth had been revealed. And so that, you know, so that tragedy still is like emotionally resonant at the end there. Um, so yeah, but we can keep talking about casting for, for days, but let's uh, bring it home by kind of talking about these two together. And we've talked about this a little bit already, but you know, I think like the biggest thing here is we're returning to 1948. And in one case, it's it's to play the hits, like you said. In the other case, it's to actually say something new about the era. Yeah, uh, I I mean, 1948 setting for both of these totally puts it smack in at the the very height of the entire genre, uh, and uh, and I don't. Um, I mean, I just I don't think it's a fair expectation that every every film that's coming out is going to be able to have something new to to add to the the conversation. So you know when you're when you're looking through the the wave of things that get that get greenlit because of whatever reason, because of whatever trend is is in motion at the time, you have to you have to really value it when you come across something like like Devil in the Blue Dress that that hits it um, pretty soundly and uh, uh, and delivers. And then you have things like the two Jakes, which, you know, I mean, it's an interesting artifact. I, I, I guess I'm glad I saw it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't think I'll ever visit the two Jakes again or really think about it much, except in the relation to Chinatown and thinking about Chinatown, right. but devil in a blue dress. I'm definitely like, man, I wish we'd gotten like 20 more of these. Or I know. They... Why, did, why, why did we not get a follow-up uh, here? I, want, yeah, I think I want box more. office wise it did. Okay. But this is also something that'd be ripe to redo as a TV series, right? Like this is the time to do each book is its own six to eight episode season. Give a little, you know, a little bit more polish just because of the money. And, but you know, it, that I, I think you could, you could, put this back up and it would still be great. And I would be like, yeah, let's, let's keep returning to these characters and hanging out with them. I got to track down the books. And, and let's, uh, let's not pretend like, um, like all of these classic noirs, um, many of them very good have, have soaring ambitions. They're just telling a good pulpy tale. Well, Um, it's, 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 it's thematically sound, right? Like they're not, they're not prestige. They're not Oscar bait as today, but, there, there's they very are, few. They have a point of view still, and like this has a point of view, and the two Jakes doesn't have a point of view. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, there's there there's granted there's plenty of 
noir with pulpy pleasures that I don't know how how much of a a point of view they have, but I think they get by on other uh, other. I mean, even riffs. just on a basic like you know, I, I mean, I think theme is something that you can be at a very simple level or something that's a lot more difficult and naughty. But I think you can still have a point of view, even just like the the way it considers any given crime that's that's being that's going on still gives at least some like thematic statement and there's something that that the directors and actors are responding to and you know to jake's kind of felt like we all said we were gonna do it <laughs> and it's been it, it does feel obligatory like they got they got so far into development on it that they just had to make it and it had right. to it had to happen oh well uh um, I, this will be a, a fun, uh, a, a fun um, thing to compare to uh, the very different direction we'll be headed next time. But, uh, yes. but before we get there, uh, is there it any, is time for what's in the box? Yes, uh, in the box. In honor of "Kiss Me Deadly," um, but I think we're going to mix it up. So we've had a bit of a delay getting back to recording, and we're recording this episode. The sight and sound. Uh, best of 2022 poll just came out. So I thought for this episode, we could each just quickly, very quickly run through. We just each decided to put together a ballot. Nobody invited us. Nobody <laughs> asked us to do this. We we did each just enjoy movies and list making. So we decided to um, each take a swing at it. So I thought we could each quickly just kind of run through our 10. And we, we, we already texted each other about it. And uh, we have no movies in, in common, so it should be a good... I think mine's a little we bit have, more... Um, we have one director in common. One director in common. Uh, mine's a little bit more, I don't know, boring, mainstream no, than yours. Um, so it, uh, Mine's uh, weird. Yours is a more interesting one, and I, so I'm excited to just kind of get get, get, some, get some of those titles out there. So um, here, how about I go first? Take, then you take can, it off, yeah. Yeah. So um, I did mine in released order. So my 10 picks would be picks would be Only Angels Have Wings, Casablanca, Singing in the Rain, Seven Samurai, Sweet Smell of Success, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Day for Night, Raiders of the Lost Ark, In the Mood for Love, and Uncle Boon Me Remembers His Past Lives. I love that you put Uncle Boon Me on there. Oh, I'm sorry, Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives. I, I love it that is... you got it. An amazing piece of cinema. I mean, it's that, a that was wonderful movie. It's an interesting reading. Critics have been post have been publishing their lists and kind of giving their reasoning behind their choices. And you know, some people were like, "I've been thinking about the canon and what it means to be in the canon." Other people were like, "These are the ten greatest movies," or like, "These are my ten favorite movies," or what? Because apparently, it really is. Sight and sound goes out to these people and are like, ten greatest movies," and that's the extent of their instructions i was trying to see if there was a if there was more of a prompt than that or anything but uh no. it really is just sort of like whatever that means to you that's what you should so and so really i really did try to go like okay just Those are great movies Fred. <laughs> truly the movies i think are peak cinema great movies so I, you, I, you know i wrestle with the like like favorite versus best versus but mm -hmm. you know it's all it's all your favorite it's, it's all subjective that's, anyway that's all yeah. what it is anyway um and so I, I definitely have like an air of wanting to champion some things that that are are lesser seen. Um, and there's definitely stone cold classics like uh, like like Chinatown or like um, Last Year at Marion Bad or Playtime or um, Eight and a Half or things that I, I genuinely love, love, love. Um, but 
the ones I was feeling for this um, in alphabetical order are Powell and Pressburger's Black Narcissus, Jacques Rovette's Celine and Julie Go Boating, Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, uh, Adida Chopra's Diwali Dohania Lagrange, Chris Marker's La Jete, uh, Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Raul Ruiz's Mysteries of Lisbon, Sui Hark's delightful Peking Opera Blues, uh, probably the hardest to find one I picked, uh, Joseph von Sternberg's Scarlet Empress, and Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. Great picks all around. I mean, just I, I, there's been a lot of discourse, and by the time this episode comes out, the discourse will have moved on because that's what it does. But, um, you know, a lot of storm and drawing about is it too far from the canon? Is it too safe with the canon? Is it done it? Is it is it changed enough? What they doubled the number of critics? What have they done? This is no longer a legitimate list, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and at least for me, you know, I it's on my letterbox profile, but supposedly Joe Dante once said there are two kinds of film lovers. They're the people who love the films that they love, and there's the people who love film, and I aspire to that second one. And so I'm always just like I love I love that you have that quote up because it's so you can hate a few things too here and there, you know, right. if you're right. right. But but you should broadly love movies. <laughs> right. Just sort of like loving the medium and being excited at everything you get to see. And so this list is great. The IMDB two fifty, which is more popular or more of a populist list. Is also great. There are great movies on both. I'm just excited for movies. I'm excited that we get to experience this art form. And so I can't wait to see what the 2032 list looks like and, and what movies will be on there and what new things to discuss and discover. Yeah, let's and, get and ourselves invited to that one. That's it. This podcast is just a long, yeah. long game to get on the Sight and Sounds. Uh, That's the ploy. 2032 list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any other final thoughts about the... The list uh, of greatest 100 greatest movies of all time. Uh, no, I I think I've seen almost all of them. Um, I've, yeah, there's a couple I've got to check off my. I'm at 50. percent um, I was dead even when it came out. I, I appreciated the the infusion of female directors onto it. I didn't compare it to what it was like uh, before, but I I, I think that uh, there is a whole lot better female representation. Thank goodness this time around. Yes, uh, it's almost like broadening the people who are submitting their thoughts has an impact on who's considered a key part of the canon. Right? How wild. And I love that Weird. they put meshes of the afternoon in the in the top 20 because it's amazing. I mean, it's not my favorite Maya Dorn, uh, which would be um, Rituals of Transfigured Time or tr- Transfigurations of Ritual Time. I can't remember the exact order of those words, but that's my personal favorite of hers. But I am glad to see her on, her, on there and highly placed because she is fantastic thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest grittiest of genres you can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on letterboxd under the handle celluloid dirt we'll see you next time when we make a hard swerve out of hard-boiled pastiche and into a more freewheeling and modern approach to the detective with a 1998 doubleheader of zero effect and the big lebowski that's right get your white russians ready it's time. Until then, may our viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. The sequel to The Jakes. <laughs> the two Jakes. 
I guess the Jake, the sequel to the Jake it's is one the two Jake. Jakes. Jake. Just Jake. <laughs> just Jake. The uh the is this JJ. That is and the uh, the um prequel, the origin would be just less than Jake. Ah, I see what you did there. 